Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for anyone interested in the Bible. Hey, that's me. Oh, you you too? Weird, yeah. me too. Ah, well, we, we've come to the right place. <laughs> I'm Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And I'm Dr. Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. This week we're covering the texts for Sunday, February 18th, uh, which happens to be the first Sunday in Lent, a new season. And I feel like there should be a, a sound that sound effect there, but dun-dun-dun, sounds feels wrong. <laughs> Rachel's up to swim in these biblical waters, so to speak. Rachel, shall we dive in? Ah, flood puns, I like it. Yes, <laughs> this week's text is indeed the famed flood narrative in Genesis 9, 8 to 17, or the ending of it, sort of. Uh, This is like the Disney ending of the Noah story. In case any of you are unfamiliar with the Noah narrative, this is the story of when God gets really disgusted with humankind and is early enough in the relationship with humanity that thinks, hey, maybe if I just kind of rub it all out, like take a giant eraser and start over again, this time it'll go better. Uh, And so that's exactly what God does. God picks one little family to start from because it's like sourdough starter, right? It's always easier when you got a little (laughs) starter to work with. Noah the sourdough starter. Noah the sourdough starter. Uh, So takes his little sourdough starter, puts them in a boat with uh, um, animals. It's unclear from the text if it's two of every animal or seven of every animal. Uh, But, you know. It's a bunch of animals either way. A lot of animal poop to clean up. (laughs) God sends rains upon the earth. It kills everything that lived and breathed upon the earth until finally the floodwaters receded and Noah and his family and the animals exit the ark. And then we have this moment, or at least we have this part of the moment. Because again, this is like, let's zero in on the Disney part and leave out the confusing uh, stuff Mm -hmm. that came right before, which sounds very Levitical, and the yucky stuff that comes right afterwards. (laughs) You you summarized the story a little uh, tongue-in-cheek, right? But it's worth noting that this is a disturbing story. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pitfall that we're going to get to uh, towards the end of the text. What's so funny about that, though, Tim, is it never even occurred to me until I got to seminary as a seminary student. And one of my professors said, how in the world did this become a beloved children's story? And I was right. like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyway, um, you know, folks, yeah, it's a it's a doozy. Now, this pericope in particular is where God establishes the very first divine covenant. Uh, So, Tim, real quick, like, what are the main ones in the Hebrew Bible that you can think of? There's this guy, right? (laughs) Yeah, so Noah, then Abraham, (laughs) and David, and... Jesus. Yeah, and then of course all of Israel at Sinai, right, too. There's that one too, yeah. There's that one. <laughs> yeah, so Noah, patriarchs, all of Israel at Sinai, David, and then actually the other one that often gets mi- missed is in Jeremiah or those those kind of exilic mm. po- pre-exilic the new, prophets. New covenant there. Yeah, new covenant mm-hmm. language. Um mm-hmm. There's some other minor ones. It was kind of fun to like dive into this a little bit, uh, including one with a guy named Phineas in Numbers 25, uh, where God establishes an everlasting priesthood in Phineas's line. Mm. I don't know why we don't have a day celebrating that covenant. I mean, come on, friends. <laughs> Titillating. Um, right, right. 
But this one is the first one. Uh, the word in Hebrew is, of course, brit, and it shows up at these moments in a particular way when God is creating a covenant, creating an agreement with a certain group of people. And as we stated already, they're usually at pretty big ticket moments. Like a covenant isn't something just like, hey, I'll pay for this now and you pay me back later. Let's make a covenant on it. Um, mm -hmm. When it comes to a divine covenant, it's at a really hot spot moment in humanity's reality um, and perhaps nowhere more evident than here in Noah when all of humanity is at stake. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's only a handful of these that come up in the Bible. And this one is particularly odd, I guess, in that it's it's not given to Israel. No, well, Israel doesn't exist yet, so right. that could be part of it. But this one is for all of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So the first the first move that God makes to be in relationship with humanity, well, after killing off most of humanity, but <laughs> to be in relationship with humanity is to make a covenant. So it is interesting that at the beginning, the very beginning of Israel's story, God's attention is not focused upon the holy people, but upon all of humanity. Can you say a little more about the, the literary context that we find this in? Yeah. So if we back up a little bit, we get a really important point of literary context, which helps us, I think, access the significance of this text in a preachable way. So jump back, if you're following along in your Bible, to Genesis 8, verse 13. Genesis 8, verse 13 is when stuff starts to happen. Noah has sent out a raven first, and nothing comes back, uh, so the waters have not subsided from the earth. He sends out a dove next, but the dove comes back and can't find anywhere to sit down outside, because again, waters haven't receded yet. Then Noah waits another seven days, sends out the dove for a second time. The dove comes back to him in the evening, and as the text says, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Once more time, he sends out the dove seven days later, and it does not return to him anymore, meaning that most likely it's safe to go out. Then in verse 13, it says, In the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month. Hmm. Now, whenever it talks about dates like that, my ear always kinds of perks up. Um, you know, there, there are tons of festivals that are described throughout the text. Um, so my thought was, well, is this one of the festivals? Um, it turns out there is a first day of the first month festival, but that's most likely a later tradition, uh, Rosh Chodesh, the new moon festival. Um, not so much in the biblical text, though, but that, that mm. phrase still stuck with me, first day of the first month. I felt like I'd heard it before. So I looked it up, and it does show up a couple of other times in the biblical text. And, and here's two of the ones that I found most interesting. First of all, it shows up in the book of Ezra, chapter 6. For those of you who, who don't quite remember what's going on in Ezra, this is after the Babylonian exile has happened, where both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have been decimated. People have been carted off or have fled into exile. But they finally get the chance to go home. In Ezra chapter 6, the first wave of exiles has returned. They've set up the altar, laid the foundation of the temple, and Ezra is now called by God to return with the rest of the things they're going to need for the newly completed temple, namely the people and most especially the Levites, because it was their job to tend to the temple. They start their journey with this. On the first day of the first month, the journey up from Babylon was begun. 
Which mm. right there, like, doesn't that sound like a fantastic first line to a novel? Like, I could just, <laughs> I could just see open up and be like, well, what happened before the first day of the first month? And yeah, where yeah. was Babylon? You know, it's just a great kind of turn of phrase. Um, but relevant to this conversation, when I read that, I couldn't help but wonder if that experience of exile was in some ways a metaphorical, and in some ways real, deluge or flood for the Judahites. Hmm. When the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and then carted people away, so much was wiped out. You have to wonder what was lost in that moment. And for the people who especially were in Babylon, it felt like only a small remnant was remaining. And I wonder if it was comforting for them at that precise moment of return and rebuilding to reach back to their history and think, what else have we done on the first day of the first month? Well, we've began life anew after the flood. So I could see an interesting sermon here that really pulls from that that concept, that theme of new life and new beginnings, you know, especially as you're thinking about beginning Lent. Hmm. So um, this is the other time that the first day of the first month occurs that feels preachable to me. This is Ezekiel 45, verse 18. It says, Thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bull of the herd without blemish and purify the sanctuary. And then it talks about the purification process that happens with the bull's blood, touching all the four corners of the ledge of the altar and the gates. And then you shall do the same on the seventh day of the month. So you shall make atonement for the temple. And it's just a really interesting concept of atonement. You know, I spent some work in Leviticus a couple of months back, and I really wrestled with this concept of atonement because mm. um, uh, things like houses, the priest says to, is, is to make atonement for houses. And I was like, well, how can a house <laughs> sin and then make atonement for what it has done? Mm. And I really wrestled with this word. And I, I think what I came to in Hebrew is it has almost less to do with atonement as it's come to mean in our time and has more to do with this concept of recovery or restoration. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, with this, with this idea of new life, new beginnings, recovery, restoration, and with it being at the point of the beginning of Lent, I'm wondering if there's something that either Ezekiel or Ezra helps with this story that is so familiar, but really quite graphic in its unfamiliar places. You know, we're at the beginning of Lent. We often call Lent the start of a new journey or a walk of faith. And as we begin that walk in the company of these ancient covenants, I wonder what it might be like to hear a sermon deeply connected to these concepts of new life, new beginnings, atonement, or recovery. Yeah, I think the theme of newness really comes out in this mm-hmm. text quite a bit. And and even back in the flood story, the other sort of tidbit there is, you know, the the, the waters came for 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah. There are these 40s that show up in the Hebrew Bible mm-hmm. that are often points of transition, right? And yeah. on the other side of a 40 is newness. Yeah. I do think, you know, we've already hinted towards one of the big problems or preaching pitfalls that you want to be aware of. Before I get to that, just a quick thing. If you are going to talk about covenants, folks, don't talk about these Hebrew Bible covenants as if they've fallen away or become obsolete in light of Jesus. Hmm. That's supersessionism, and that's something that nobody wants to do. Remember that it's in Jeremiah where new covenant language is first brought up, uh, and that Just because the Sinai covenant happened, it didn't take the place of the Noah covenant or the Abraham covenant. So there's Mm -hmm. lots of room at the table for all of these covenants to be. Yeah. 
You know, that preaches well in my Presbyterian context where we have a a book of confessions, Mm -hmm. where it's not that, you know, sort of new confessions take the place of the old ones, but they sort of stack up together. Yeah. And and they all work together for guidance and blessing and all that kind of stuff. So so that seems to be the, the case with these biblical covenants as well. It's not that new covenants supersede and make old ones obsolete. Yeah. It's that they all come as a gift of, of God's grace, and they stack up together. Yeah. that's Think of it as a choir versus rotating soloists who are trying to shove each other off the stage. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think the last pitfall I would talk about is is just folks to be aware of and try to wrestle with the fact that this is not, in fact, a kid's story. Uh, just before our pericope, God grants the ability for humans to kill and eat animals. Uh, that doesn't happen in the Bible up until this point. Humans are given every green thing for food. And no, that doesn't mean frogs and reptiles. It means the leafy <laughs> stuff. I it's never only thought a- about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> it's only after this horrible moment of slaughter that humans are allowed to do the same. The other thing is that just after our pericope, the horrible reality of the situation catches up to Noah. His first act after sacrificing to God and receiving the covenant is to plant a vineyard, drink until he's numb both to pain and the world, and fall over half naked and passed out in his tent. Now, going too far into the graphic reality of this story might unnerve some of your parishioners, but avoiding it altogether does the disservice of glossing over the difficult nature of human experience. And mm-hmm. and that's something we've done too often in our churches. And it's something that I would encourage you to find a way through. Yeah, this story is a fresh start, but it's not a happily ever after. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Well, I think that gives us a lot of places to go with this Genesis 9 story. So thanks for giving us some tips there, Rachel. You're welcome. And thanks to all of you for listening. First Reading is produced by Rachel and me, along with our fantastic colleagues, Rosie and Paul. You can learn all about the podcast and find back episodes at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. If you found these conversations helpful, would you consider donating to support our work? You can access links to give one-time gifts or set up regular contributions over on the website. You can also find us on Facebook, Spotify, and probably some other places, too. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching.